welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spendlove, and I'm joined not in our studio today, <laughs> but in the luxurious faculty office of Professor Greg White uh, by our very special guest host, Miss Sarah Kirtan. How are you? I'm doing very well, Chris. Thank you for having me. Today. Thanks for joining us. Yes. Uh, we're, we're kind of broadening our horizons here on the podcast. We are, yes. This is a special episode, too. We have our our uh, famous Professor Greg White here, good yeah. friend of ours, if you'd like to introduce him. Sure, of course. How are you, Professor? <laughs> I'm doing great. Good. Honored to be invited. Well, <laughs> it, uh, it's, it is our honor. It was, I think, probably the second or third time when I said, hey, guys, I've, I've got a schedule our mock trial practice around a podcast interview that you oh, were it's, like. it's been a couple times yeah it was, it was a lot so you guys were very accommodating but you know greg professor white was like we gotta we gotta get you yeah we get i want to be on the podcast was, oh yeah, the yeah. One. i was like well, we'll get you we'll get you on the podcast so i promoted is, myself i admit right. it and so to all you listeners who would like to be on the show just bug me enough and we'll, we'll get right. you an interview That's he's, easy. Yeah. he's easy he's easy or you can ask me and then i will bug chris there you go yeah you've got a way to get on the show <laughs> yeah is the point that's right the point but we're really excited to talk with professor white today um kind of the again the nexus of of getting professor white on the show is Sarah and I both just competed on a uh, mock trial team yes. for the Best in Texas Aboda Vordire competition, which was very, very fun. Oh, yes. And we are totally 100% awesomely cool with the results of that, right, Sarah? <laughs> uh, I mean, do you want my honest opinion with this? I'm, <laughs> we, I can give it, but... We, we enjoyed our time. Yes, we did. And Rashawn Stevens and I took home oh. some hardware and hey you it know, was that's, beautiful that's what it's all about yeah so it was beautiful um kind of in the you know the yeah interrupt to shout out to the yeah. american board of trial advocates yeah. yes aboda and Aboda's, those are yeah. people by invitation only um who actually try cases yeah you cannot be an aboda member unless you've tried them a minimum amount of jury trials as lead counsel so these are people that have been in court not just people that um do discovery and take depositions but they pick juries they tried jury cases, and so their uh, commitment to seeing that people um, actually have experience picking juries before they go out and do the real thing is an awesome commitment. And I would assume for all the people that contributed, you're like, that was an invaluable experience. Yeah. I would mm -hmm. never get to do that otherwise. Yeah. It was a real deal. It really was. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a few of our faculty members are about a members, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Jim Wren, Liz Braley. Um, I am. Yep. Well, there you go. Um, Present company included. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else, but I sure, know Jim and Liz yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah, and they brought in a panel of Aboga members yes, when we yeah, were in PC. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, was really cool, especially the, for me, I don't know, I'm, I'm a, kind of an old-fashioned guy, but their emphasis on the Seventh Amendment and right yes. to a jury trial, you know, that really was Absolutely. impactful to me. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, cool. Professor Powell was a member of Aboda also. Okay. And he used to have a bumper sticker promoting the Seventh <laughs> Amendment on the back of his jeep. <laughs> <laughs> have all that's, the bumper stickers. Yeah, that's that's, that's not usually the amendment you yeah, see on the yeah. bumper sticker. <laughs> it really isn't, no. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, well, yeah. For for what it's worth, thank yeah. you, uh, Aboda members, for having us because it was, it was really valuable. We've talked uh, quite a bit here about Vordire in the criminal context. This was mm -hmm. a, civil, a civil yeah. suit, but, you know, just... Uh, just really emphasizing how important that aspect of, of the trial is. It, yeah. was, it was a lot of fun. It was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. Professor White, would you say Vordire is pretty case dispositive, or it can be? 
it can be. Yeah. I mean, you, you cannot predict well enough um, how people will actually vote. Um, you're trying to get rid of people that you know are against you, and you don't always have 12 people that mm -hmm. are absolutely in favor of you. Yeah. And uh, so everybody has a lot of work to do from the time that the 12 people are seated. So what you're hoping for is that the people um, are willing to trust you um, and are not adverse to your theory of the case. You want people that are against you because I don't think you'll ever get 12 people that are all for you before you start. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work to do, yeah. but picking or deselecting people that are your, um, you know, like built to oppose your position is the job of Ordire. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool to see that in action because we, we got to yeah. do a little bit of that in PC, mm -hmm. but they brought in real folks from Bear County. It was in the San Antonio. A lot of them, the, yeah. In, in San Antonio, yeah. in the Bear County court, Courthouse. A lot of folks from the community. And hearing, uh, <laughs> we talk about in the criminal law society a lot, being a normal person, right? <laughs> hearing oh, a lot man. of normal oh, people was like, oh, this is a little bit different than our practices when yes. our well, was it's made up of a very diverse group of people, too. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was cool to hear opinions that, even though, you know, we were, I think, sometimes in our practices trying to push the outer bounds of what might be said, yeah. but to hear different opinions and insights was, was really cool. Yeah, and I think um, we did, when we were practicing and preparing for this big competition, we did a very good job of tailoring our questions to exactly what Professor White was saying, the, the goal of jury deselection. Yeah. Um, when we were going against uh, University of Houston, who was you know an amazing team, wonderful coach, wonderful, uh, wonderful team members. I remember I was sitting at the uh, at council table right next to Jeff, who was on that team, mm -hmm. and he leans over. He's like, "Who was who was a psych major on your team? Like, oh yeah, like you know what's going on with this? Who knew kind of the ins onto the precise questions to ask?" And I'm like, "None of us. We just had a great coach. Yeah, that, that was <laughs> it. Right. That was it." And, and he, you know, he said, "You know, your questions they they were very tailored. They were, you know, you're really just digging into the minds of the jurors." Whereas, you know, a lot of the other questions were very just broad form, kind of general, can you follow the preponderance standard versus right. reasonable doubt, all of that kind of stuff. So I think not only practice court, but especially being coached by Professor White, um, it, it gave us a realistic, uh, good, you know, avenue into proper board iron and how it should be done. Yeah, I agree because like you're saying, a lot of the teams that we saw, again, great advocates they yeah. were there for a reason you yeah. know no 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 doubt about it but a lot of the questions that were being asked were kind of what i would say are the more generic vordire questions like do you know us yeah. right have you do you know the parties in this case you know let's talk about the burden of proof that right. kind of thing. important stuff to talk about eventually but i really enjoyed our approach where we we were talking about all kinds of stuff you oh, know, yeah. hypothetical scenarios with Tr trying to get at, you know, a person's actual decision-making process. Mm -hmm. Not the answer to the question, but how they would arrive at the answer, um, which I thought was really cool. And, you know, I of course, I'm bringing uh, kind of the the Miyagi-Do of, of <laughs> Ryan Calvert, who's a great friend of <laughs> yes, our show. Yes. You know, starting with yes. his questions about, you know, how can I lose this particular yeah. case? What are jurors in this case going to have a problem with? How do I need to speak to them? like I'm going to be talking to them in closing statement, this is going to be a closing argument, and then to have Professor White come in and kind of blow all that up yeah. and say, you know, this is what's going to be important 
in a civil case. I, I thought that that was a really cool combination. Well, we had great table talk yeah, about what was the thing that was going to turn the case one way or the other. And we honed in on that one thing. If they believe this, yeah. then the plaintiff's going to win. If yeah. they believe that, the defense is going to win. Yeah. And that's, that's in, in real trials, you, it's hard to do one thing. Sure. Sure. Uh, but this exercise was, it enabled us to do that, and that was the value, having four lawyers around the table going, I think this, I think that, mm -hmm. I think this. Then we got on that one issue and said, well, so what is the belief that you want mm -hmm. to uncover? Yeah. And then we started designing questions to uncover that belief, and sure enough, when you asked the jurors, when you guys were doing it, they were telling you what they believed. They were. It was, it was they right were, there. And they? They, were, they were in it. Yeah. yeah. They were really interested. Because that's the other thing you worry about is just the crickets on yes, poor guy, right? Yes. You ask a question, there's just nothing. And you can cold call people, I guess. Yeah. But the way that we had tailored this thing and set it up, people were like, we're seeing yeah. hands all over yeah. the place. Yeah, they're just firing off their opinions. And I also think we didn't need to cold call that much, mainly because both you and Rashawn, I mean, I think a, a very you know, intrinsic part of Ward Dyer, maybe Greg, you'd agree, is just being personable. You know, oh, yeah. it's having yeah. that just natural ability to connect with people. And you and Rashawn were both, you know, masters at that in your own uh, your own ways. So you connected with the jurors in, in different ways. And, you know, you didn't need to, to cold call, you know, going through a panel one by one. They, they were very voluntary to to offer their own experiences and uh, opinions. And I think it worked really well for us. Well, and the questions yeah, were yeah. so well put. When I yeah. saw y'all ask them, you know, anybody would have raised their hand and said, I want to answer. Yeah. I yeah. want to answer. Yeah. That's what they wanted to do. So um, the way y'all presented, the way you asked the question, that's what did it. The other great thing that y'all did, and when I looked at the ballots very carefully, mm -hmm. was when you struck somebody, more often than not, you struck somebody that voted against you. Yep. Wow. And that that cool. was yeah, yeah, that was Sarah that. knowing what <laughs> those yeah, people exactly were going right. to do. That's yeah. exactly and right. Putting her eyeball on all those people yeah. while they were talking to y'all, and I'm sure y'all all conferred and kind of, of course, came to yeah. a, con yeah. a consensus about it. But that's a really important skill to be able to pay attention and make a note and make a judgment call on whether that's the person that needs to go. Yeah. And it's not just one question, but it's a series of questions that reveal those beliefs and how strongly they hold them that tells you, that's not a person I want. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting with that, like something as small as facial expressions and like pauses and especially with jurors that are, they're very expressive. Usually, you know, if I, if I, yeah. <laughs> I was, I was keeping a very close eagle eye on the panel while both Chris and Rashawn were delivering their voir dire and you know, there there were some jurors that were, you know, super engaged here and there. And then as soon as you breached a certain topic or a cer certain question, they really shut down. And, mm -hmm. you know, even if they didn't provide anything, I was like, okay, this isn't sitting well with them. Or, you know, their eyebrows were furrowed in a certain way or their body, their body language kind of like, you know, curled up a little bit. Or, yeah. So it's, it's very interesting what you can get both from the expressive responses as well as the, the you know, non-expressive kind of body language uh, responses to those. So I think it worked well with us. Yeah, we were yeah. Well, the other thing that you learned was it's not about whether they're women or men. No. It's not it's about not. whether they're a school teacher or a plumber. Right. It's not about where they live in town. Yeah. Um, it's not about all those things that you, you know, or are they a Lutheran or a Catholic, mm -hmm. you know, or are they, you know, Jewish <laughs> yeah. and generous, or are they Lutheran and, you know, not generous. You know, none of that stuff works. Right. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. It's all about their heart and mind, and that's what you got to ask about. Yeah. Well, I, th- I mean, I think, you know, all those things worked in combination. Um, just to give you an idea, listeners, you mm-hmm. know, Rashawn and I had the speaking roles, and that was a tough decision to come yeah, to. We could talk about that for a while. Because yeah. Sarah did such a good job, especially on our opening you're statement sweet. and oh, stuff. But, sweet. you know, when, when it came down to it, we needed somebody in that tactician role who was really dialed in and really detail-oriented, and it became clear that Sarah was, you know, was the one to do it. We talked a little bit uh, in our episode about the Criminal Vordire boot camp that yeah. we got to do during PC. Oh, about, I think I've heard that one. Yeah, about, you know, wanting to do a little bit more in that exercise as the person at the table watching everybody. Uh, and Michael Morn will be pleased to hear, you know, that <laughs> I have since figured out that Goose was, in fact, the radio intercept <laughs> officer, not the tail gunner. So oh, Sarah, as our <laughs> Goose, as our radio intercept officer, was really, I mean, really keeping us on target, you know, and, and to keep with the Top Gun thing. Yeah. I mean, it was, we were bouncing back to that table saying, talk to me, Goose, you know, yeah. talk yeah. to me, Sarah. It was what, good. Are, what are you seeing? What do we need to focus on? Who good. do we need to talk to? Uh, and uh, anyway, it was we, we had a blast. We had a blast. It was that. a great competition. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I don't. I really don't think. I don't think it could have gone any better um, with what we we put out and what we provided to the jurors. And again, like Professor White said, how we picked our jury. I think we did a very solid job of identifying exactly who we wanted off, and it reflected in the ballots. Yeah. Well, and the great thing is, every one of you would now say. First day I show up in the job, I'm going to say, when's the next jury? That's yeah. right. That's yeah, right. that's I right. volunteer. Yeah. That's right. It's going to be fun. I mean, it's going to be fun. Uh-huh. Not going to be scared of it. Not going to be worried no. about it. No. Not going to wonder if you're going to do well. You're going to be volunteering. Yeah. Stepping up. It'll be, it'll be cool. And that's, you know, we talk about being practice ready here at Baylor, right? And mm-hmm. just getting to do stuff like that and having a great coach who can who can get us there. I mean, that's that's part of it. So, uh, Vordyer is one I'd of the like many things. I'm really enjoying yeah. this podcast where you continuously say, what a great coach. This has really <laughs> happened to me a lot. So we'll this is why we bring people on here. We'll continue. I mean, it won't stop, Professor We're White. also in a very cozy office yeah. setting. We are. You know, the the studio are. is fine, but it's a little bereft of I'm character. On, I'm on I Professor we're... White's little footstool bear right now. Yeah, it's an, it's it's an it's a Ottoman sweet little bear, bear, which I think is cool. And he's my favorite. So, yes, it's a very nice and cozy little place. <laughs> and it's Friday afternoon. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah that's right. We're just hanging loose. It's great. That's right. Well, I was going to say, you know, Vordire is just one of the many things. Things that Greg White brings to the table. Yes. Little, oh, yeah. A little bit more I inflation. I know. Um, we typically, the, one of the first questions we ask, but we you mm-hmm. know, had such a good conversation well, before there, is uh, you, the guest's story. Yes. Kind of how you got from point A, wherever you want that story to be, you know, in the beginning or, you know, <laughs> some point thereafter uh, to where you're at now. So I'll kind of turn it over to you and I just kind of ask you the Greg White story, as Love it were. It. So my wife had asked me to marry her. And I thought that the right thing to do was go talk to her dad. And so I went in to speak to him and asked him if I could have his daughter's hand in marriage. And he said, when are you working here? And I said, well, I have a job. And he said, you didn't hear me. When are you going to start working here? And I said, Monday? (laughs) And I... Question mark? He was a very, very well-respected trial lawyer in Central Texas. And so by working with him, I got to do cases I would have never had a shot at. I was trying cases for my first year. Um, two years out, I argued a case before the Texas Supreme Court. Oh my wow. I just did all wow. kinds of stuff that was massive opportunities for me. And in the firm, I was the only one that was willing to do appellate briefs. Mm. And so when they established the board certification in civil appellate law, 
I was only five years out of school, but I already qualified for it. Wow. And so I took the test oh and qualified gosh. in the first group of people that were board certified in civil appellate law. And so that's how I got to doing more appeals than I did trials. But one thing that did help me was I never really abandoned doing trials. Mm -hmm. You could call me and I'll go try a case for you. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, but, you know, the thing I was really thought that I liked doing the most and that probably I was better at was doing appeals. And so I've gone through, um, I've probably done 60 or 70 appellate arguments. Oh my I've probably written 150 appellate briefs. Uh, one way or the other. I've tried more than 25 jury cases uh, with varying results, I must admit. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, that's, Some, that's part of yeah, it, right? The ones I remember, I won. <laughs> that, that's, what, that's, what uh, that's what Professor Little said. He said, if you can only talk to trial attorneys who've won their cases, it's like talking to the gambler in Vegas who's only ever won. You well, know to be fair, Professor Little and I tried cases together. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah okay. and we've never lost. <laughs> well, there you go. I'm not shocked, yeah, that's honestly. Not surprising. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not shocked. We have tons of great stories <laughs> we tried together. I bet. I think that Robert tried his first case in federal court with me. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, okay. you know, it just feels different over there. The courtroom is so big. Mm -hmm. uh, you're so far away from the judge. The judge is up on this high pedestal up mm -hmm. there. You know, you wow. can't really talk to the judge. You have to talk to the courtroom deputy and all that stuff. And so yeah. um, it feels different. And your first time in there actually speaking doesn't feel the same as going into state courthouses sure. where... It's more intimate, you know, like everything's kind of packed together a little closer. Yeah. He did a great job. We won that case. Sure. Well, again, not surprising. Yeah, not shocked. Know, not shocked. But congratulations. Well, we don't have any great. trouble with, you know, like, hey, take this guy. You do this witness. Yeah. 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 You do the clothes. You know, yeah. We don't have gotcha. any arguments about that. You've got a good, a good rapport. Well, this, you know, I, we would love to hear as many stories as you'd be willing to share. This being the Criminal Law Society mm -hmm. podcast, we'd love to hear, you know, some of the criminal cases that you've tried. I'm guessing all of them on the defense side, or have you been called into Oh, I've never been a prosecutor. I've okay. never prosecuted yeah. anybody. Yeah. But um, my, my criminal experience largely comes in federal court. And the reason was that um, Judge Walter Smith, who sat in the district court here, didn't have a federal public defender's office. And so he had to rely on a panel of attorneys who volunteered to do it. And I remember distinctly the first time that I got called because I'm just sitting in my office. And this was back in the day when, when you called the phone number and it would go through the receptionist and the secretary and then to the lawyer. Yeah. Um, and so you would hear on the intercom or on your phone, uh, Mr. White, so-and-so yeah. so is on the phone. Oh, man. And so, that's, so old that's school. old school, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm sitting in there and, and the call is, Mr. White, Judge Walter Smith is on the phone. Oh, good. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Your Honor. Yeah. And so it's like, Greg, I know you tried a case in my court, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I think you're ready to start doing some criminal cases. So I've appointed you on a criminal case. <laughs> Judge, I've never tried a criminal case. I've never tried a criminal case in your court. It's like, it'll be easy. Wow. It'll be fine. <laughs> and you know, the truth of it was, um, I was fine. Yeah. Um, I felt confident as a trial lawyer, and once you learn the substance of what the case is all about, it's still, make an opening statement, it's mm. still, do your direct examinations. You plan for your case and, you know, what you're going to present and what you think the jury needs to think about. You cross-examine the witnesses, um, and you do a closing argument. The charge yeah. is a little bit more simple to deal with, but otherwise, all those skills that you bring to a criminal case work in civil court. Mm. All the skills you bring to civil court work in criminal court. And I think it's just a crying shame that people think 
that, oh, well, once I've committed to doing civil or criminal, then yeah. I can never be a different kind of trial lawyer. Yeah. That's just yeah. untrue. Hmm. Um, so the first that's, case he appointed me to was a massive drug conspiracy with 14 defendants. And I had, you know, one of the minor defendants who was the airplane pilot for a private plane that gathered up bales, and I mean like hay bales, of marijuana and flew them from Mexico over Texas. This okay. is an allegation. Okay. And kicked them out of Allegedly. the plane. Yeah. Yeah. Kicked them out of the plane, you know, and then they would land in a field and allegedly the cohorts would come gather these yeah. hay bales of marijuana and drive them off and sell them. Well, he's down in Mexico working on a plane and these DEA agents come and they identify him and they just took him back to America. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, they didn't ask uh, him would he come. They don't, you can't arrest anybody in Mexico. They just picked him up and put him on a plane and brought him back to Austin, Texas. Oh my gosh. Well, the rule is, the judge would say, I don't care how you got here, it's that you're here. You may now enter your plea. Hmm. Holy cow. So there is no, there is no prohibition about theoretically kidnapping someone and bringing them back if there's an indictment pending. Oh and you know, we didn't challenge that at all. Yeah. I mean, you could just do it. There's, there's a little bit of mercy that comes in with that later on because he was hmm. not an American citizen, he was not a Mexican citizen, he was a Canadian citizen. Oh so we try the whole case and at the end of it, they're all guilty. Um, and my guy is sent to jail, but ultimately um, gets an arrangement to trade a Canadian in an American prison for him, a Canadian Canadian-American prison, which this guy, for an American in a Canadian prison, okay. ah. swapped it out, yeah, yeah. and it worked out fine, and I understand that he did not have a hard road to hoe in a Canadian prison. So all kind I of bet. turned out. I bet, yes, I bet. Like. But yes. the better story behind that was <laughs> that the kingpin, you know, the guy that's number yeah. one on the list, um, he was convicted and was, you know, got a horribly uh, lengthy prison sentence. Um, but he had other charges pending against him in California. And so the federal marshals were required to obey the state written California to deliver the prisoner to California, which they did. Um, he was then arraigned in California, and the judge, of course, said a million dollar bond. I, I don't know the actual number, but I'm trying to say it was really a bunch of money. Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so he's processed through the California jail, and somebody came by and dropped off a million dollars, and he <laughs> walked out the door. And somebody missed the fact that he was detained as a federal prisoner. So he's on the lam. And so oh, I, every, you know, but back here in Waco and he basically reaches trying, back trying here. I remember what episode of Narcos that was. No, no, yeah, that's right? coming, that's right. coming. Oh my gosh, yeah. all, right, all right, all right. So, um, so everybody in Waco, that, that story eventually reaches here and all of the, you know, it's kind of a small community of people that try criminal cases over in Judge Smith's court. So we're all like, oh my gosh, you know, he's, he's on the lam, you know. And so, uh, sure enough, Judge Smith calls me one evening and he's like, great, watch, um, one cops. America's Most Wanted. Oh, okay. Watch America's Most Wanted tonight. I go, okay. And so I did, and they had the Kingpin's picture on there, and all the charges against him, and that he had escaped, and all this stuff. And, oh and so I was like, oh, wow, that was the trial I, I was in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh so, you know, it was on that week. And so, like, it's about uh, some period of time later. Let's just say a month later. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't know exactly how much. Yeah. Judge Smith called. Watch America's Most Wanted. <laughs> so I watch it, and they found him. Where was he? They found him in California, and they trailed his car, you know, you know, slow-mo OJ style, right. you know, oh, up, good. Yeah. up some small hill, 
and he stopped and he opened the car door and came out guns a blazing. <gasps> no. And oh they blazed gosh. right back at him. <gasps> and that was the end of that gunfight was he was deceased. My God. Oh my God. So I'm like, Ooh. oh my gosh. <laughs> was that, and that was your first introduction to criminal law. That was a criminal law. <laughs> yeah. 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 Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome, Greg White. Wow. We're just going to give you the coolest one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my witness, oh my the one goodness. witness that I located on my own, uh, for that case is the one that is one that I distinctly remember and is timely here because they had said that they knew that these the DEA said they knew that these guys were doing this uh, because they had run surveillance um, during this particular period of time mm. and so you know I'd seen that in the in the reports that were delivered by the DEA to the defense side you know they they, they tell the story of how the investigation went on so I read that and I go huh and so I looked because I was at the calendar to see what was going on then and was there anything to know from that. And in the Gulf of Mexico, there was a huge hurricane mm. at the very time that they said they were conducting surveillance down. Okay. And so I said, well, that's a little fishy. I'm mm -hmm. not sure they're really mm -hmm. telling the whole story about that. So I wanted to produce the jury, you know, after that witness testified and they'd done that, um, I put a weatherman on. <laughs> And here's how it went. The weatherman was the local guy that's on TV every night. Yeah. In those days, you watched the news right. at 10 o'clock, right? I'm remembering yeah. this from yeah. my childhood. Yeah. So you yeah. watched the news at 10 o'clock, and the weatherman would come on. And the weatherman for this particular station, his tagline when he came in was, was that he was certified by the National Meteorological Society. Unlike any other weatherman in the right, central yeah, Texas area. Yeah. He had the certification. Okay, okay. So, you know, so I call him. He says, well, yeah, I testify, you know. And I said, well, here's the dates. And, you know, the hurricane was there. That's all I really need to know. Yeah. He says, fine, I'll bring some graphs and maps. And stuff. <laughs> nice. Great. Love That'd it. Cool. Love it. And so he gets up on the stand and I say, is it true that you're the only Central Texas weatherman who is board certified by the National Meteorological Association? He said, yes, it is. Wow. I said, all right. I said, have you ever been wrong about tomorrow's weather? He said, yes, all the time. Yep. I said, have you ever been wrong about yesterday's weather? He said, never. <laughs> <laughs> oh and so I said, so I want to talk about yesterday's weather. That's good. And so then we talked about the hurricane Genius. and everything. Else. Of course they don't care. The jury does not have, you do not care one whit whether there was a hurricane there or not. Mm -hmm. uh, because ultimately they believe that these People have been called, engaged in a conspiracy to import drugs into Texas. And, and, and at that period of time, weed was as bad as anything else. Sure. Right. Now, there's no excuse right. for weed uh, just because more people use it than they do you know, other drugs. So, mm -hmm. and there was no kindness uh, to weed dealers different than, you know, like meth or something like yeah. that. Right. right. Wow. That is something. I was oh, there's way more stories from it because it lasted six okay. weeks. Well, let's keep, yeah. No, let's no, keep no, there's no more from that one. But I mean, it lasted six weeks. And so uh -huh. that was my first criminal jury case. Yeah, welcome. Was a six week drug conspiracy <laughs> trial that lasted not only for the six weeks, but for months afterwards. And the it judge was still reverberating. Yeah. Watch the television. Watch television. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was sitting here uh, last week, I guess, telling you about my first goose hunt when it was yeah. just a cloud of geese in the sky. We had yeah. our pick. You know, afterward, my dad was like, uh, so I probably can't take you goose hunting anymore because it's usually just wet and muddy and miserable. Not like that. So was that your goose hunting experience? Did it ruin other criminal cases? No, no, not at all. Okay, good, good, um, good. They're all, you know, have kind of this 
thing with them where you go, huh? Because if you if it's clear that the person is guilty, then yeah. you know a smart federal lawyer can figure out what the sentence is going to look like, right? Um, and can kind of manipulate that sentence a little bit with acceptance of responsibility mm-hmm. or you know other kind of you know things that kind of reduce culpability, and eventually you can get a pretty good prediction for your client um, of what it's going to be, and Frankly, all defendants really want is a fair shake. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it. They know what they did, mm-hmm. um, and they know how they're involved in it, and they know what their moral culpability is, and they know that there should be some punishment um, when they know they've done something wrong. And so all they want is just be fair with me. Yeah. Be candid and honest about what's going to happen. Don't give me up. You know, don't treat me like I'm not a person, mm-hmm. you know, tell me everything I need to know so that I can make a smart decision. And go. generally, if you make the process work for them and they understand what has happened, then those that plead guilty largely are pleading guilty because they know it's time to pay for what they've done. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not all of them. Yes. There are yeah. lots of them that are overcharged, you know, shouldn't have that serious a charge. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you do the calculation, it's ridiculous how long the sentence will be given what they've actually done wrong. Or they say that that's not what I did. I did something completely different. I shouldn't be charged with that. And the rare one that says, not me, that's some other dude. Mm. Okay. Um, and, you know, the SOD or SOD defense is pretty rarely successful. Some other dude. Some other dude. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, that, yeah. that usually doesn't work, but every once in a while, you know, I'm, I'm sure that it does. Hmm. Uh, but, like, there was one case that I had, the judge appoints me, and the, it's typical in the Western District of Texas that you would get um, immigration cases. So it would be somebody who had been removed from the country, I would say deported, and I don't know the distinction between the two, but deported, uh, and then came back. Yeah. If you do that, that's against the law. Right. Seriously against the law, like 10 years or more against the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's bad. And so I get appointed on one of these. And the circumstances were that uh, this guy um, had received a charge for drunk driving in Bell County, Texas. And he was in the Bell County Jail when the federal officials came up and they said, are you, you know, so-and-so? And he said, yes, I am. They said, you're under arrest. He said, I know I'm under arrest. I'm sitting in a jail cell. In jail. In, yeah. You're under re-arrest. You know, oh, I'm arresting okay. you again. What for? Oh, because you were deported and now you're still in America. You came back. And so when I get to talk to him, um, he says, when I left, they gave me a sheet of paper that said that I could come back in two years. Who gave you that? Mm-hmm. INS. In, in, you know, the naturalization, immigration nationalization. Do you have that paper? I said, yes, I do. Oh, my God. I said, let's see it. Hello. And I mean, sure enough, it says right there, you are being deported. Um, you, you know, this decision has been made, and you may not return for two years. What the heck? Wow. That's not the law. The law is you yeah. may never return. Yeah. yeah. And so I said, we're going to trial. And so <laughs> of course. we oh get to trial, and it's, we decide on a bench trial because I don't want to take the chance yeah. that somebody's going to have bad feelings about immigrants, you That's know, right. or, or think wrongly about it. But the judge is bound to be able to look at this and say, you can't tell people they can do something and then punish them for doing the, same, the thing that you said they could do. Right. Um, and so there it is. And so we put the, I can't get that sheet of paper into evidence without putting the defendant on the stand. Of course. Which yes. I right. did not like that idea at all. Right. Right. But I, no other way to do it. 
And so there it is, and um, he introduces it, passes it up to the judge, you know, the judge looks at it, and the judge has this very quizzical <laughs> look on his face when he looks over at the government. Is this, a, this has form number, you know, INS 2075 on it. And he said, is this real? And yeah, it's real. Oh, come on. I'm like, oh, okay. Wow. And so then, pass the witness, Your Honor. First question. <gasps> When did you actually come back? And he goes, I don't know what you mean. You know, he's really yeah, kind of on. juggling yeah. a little bit. And he come says, um, you came back immediately, didn't you? You crossed the border like 30 days after you were sent, sent deported. And he goes, I don't know if it was 30 days. And Judge Smith goes, sir, do you know yeah. the penalties for perjury? Oh, man. And so the guy goes, yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. They didn't wait the two years. Oh, <laughs> and so that reduced my argument to, it doesn't matter what the time is, they didn't find it. <laughs> yeah, they I didn't still. find him until after two but years. But still, Your Honor. Come on, man. They didn't find him until after oh, two years, gosh. so he does get the benefit of this thing, and the judge goes, shaking his head at me, and I go, Judge, really. That was a good idea. Do you want to pay for room and board <laughs> for this guy who came back and has never done anything oh, beyond man. a drunk driving thing? for seven years. And he says, no, I do not. Unfortunately, I do not have a choice. Man. Wow. That was it. Huh? Wow. Yeah, that was it. That is, that is something. We oh. just, I just like, oh, yeah. why did you say that? And that hadn't come up at all, obviously, in your, in your, in your thing. We just read a case, um, the Doggett case in Advanced Crim Pro. It's a little bit different because the guy had been, uh, uh, they were indicting him for like huge amounts of drugs, and he flees to Colombia, uh, and then he ends up in like a Panamanian prison on his way to Colombia. Ends up in prison in Colombia, finds his way back to the U.S. You know, and eight years later, the government's like, "Oh, hey, you're the guy we were gonna <laughs> indict," <laughs> and uh, he ends up winning on his right to speedy trial argument. So a little bit different, yeah. uh, but it had been two years right? since your guy had come back, yeah. I didn't like Doggett, and I think yeah. I was in yeah. the class that didn't like it, but that's okay. Uh, well, I mean, up. being willfully escaping doesn't have a lot of moral high ground no. to it. Yeah, it that's yeah. a little bit tough. Yeah. yeah, and willfully coming back in. You're like, well, I've got this paper. And you're like, <laughs> Hello, <laughs> red flag. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, let's divert. That's wild. Uh, what else? I just, I just, I'm loving these stories. Okay, what, so, what, 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 what yeah. else? so I got a point in another yeah. one, and yeah. it was a. Uh, um, Felon in possession of a firearm, okay. which is the most simple crime on the books. Right. Proof is felon. Yes. Yes or no. <laughs> right. Or no. I guess in the possession. prosecutor oh, has yeah. to say Come on. Come on, Chris. Or no. In possession, you know, <laughs> which is not very hard to prove, and then of a firearm. Yeah. And so, like, they usually result in a guilty plea. But in this instance, uh, the guy that I got appointed to, you know, I go and talk to the U.S. attorney, and the U.S. attorneys here in Waco are just Fine people. They mm-hmm. do not um, want to do anything that would be perceived as unfair. And I think in part because that's like their makeup and character, but also in part because they've never lost a case. You know? Love it. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I'm going to win anyway, so whatever. <laughs> so anyway, I go over and I talk to one of them. And he said, Yeah, this was from Sting. And I said, Oh, got video? And he said, Yes, I do. I said, I'd like to see it. He said, I'll send it to you. Yeah. And so I look at the video, and, you know, sure enough, there is like a... a Brady like disclosures, by the way. Really yeah. scary-looking, like, building, and when you go inside, it's like a, you know, like a felon's gun shop. 
Oh. You know, it's probably what was the name of it. You know? Sure. Right. <laughs> Get your firearms here. Sign out front. I was very suspicious looking. The minute you have to show in. your rap sheet to get in the door. <laughs> very suspicious looking when you first walk in there. But um, the the guy behind the counter is showing the guns to the guy that ends up being my client, who is a felon, by the way, yeah. indisputably so. Um, and my guy wants one really bad. Yeah. But he never touches one. And so he leaves, and then they arrest him. And they try to fell in possession of the firearm. And I'm like, Interesting. Mark, he yeah. was not in possession. He goes, ah, you know, whatever. Semantics. Yeah. Semantics, yeah. yeah. So. Possession is possession, whatever. Yeah, right, right. Possession, yeah. submission. <laughs> <laughs> so the day for trial comes, and I'm in the, you know, in the courtroom, sitting at defense counsel table, you know, waiting for the jury to be called in. And the U.S. attorney for that time period walks in. And everybody knows there he is. Um, and he comes up to me, introduces himself, and he goes, I come on to try this one. I go, Welcome. Yeah, wow. there's the prosecutor's table over there. Yeah. And as it was told to me afterwards by one of the prosecutors, who like I said, I'm very friendly with them, they're yeah. great guys. Yeah. Said, Yeah, he came in to show the troops how to try this case. Mm-hmm. And so we try it, and I think that he thought it was gonna be so your Honor, we present proof that he's a felon. We also have witnesses here who will say he was in possession, and we have a witness who says he's a firearm. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, he thought that was going to be the proof, and then I would go, oh, But nah. when the video went up and all that, you could kind of see the worry on his face that this wasn't all that he had dreamed it would be, and sure enough, hung jury. Wow. So the wow. big the big cheese came in to tell him how to try a case and ended up in the hung jury. That wasn't me. That was the fact that the video did not help them at all. I yeah. think that was you too, yeah, Professor but, White. But, that's, you know, yeah, that was but there's also this rest of the story because the U.S. Attorney's Office, being as good as they are, yeah. they just said, yeah, that's not the problem. Wow. And like a week later they arrested him because he had a gun under the seat of his car. There you go. So the second indictment was not as easily disposed of. No, I don't think so. He didn't didn't come back to try that one. No, I I don't think so. He had enough of that. (laughs) It's like, you guys will figure it out eventually. Yeah, but then then that goes to the next story, which is that one of the witnesses in these is always an ATF guy. Mm -hmm. Fell in possession of a firearm. So somebody has to get up there and say that this is a firearm, that when you take certain action with it, it will explode and, you know, project some kind of projectile and that's what the statute defines as a firearm and that it's traveled in interstate commerce because mm-hmm. you can tell right here that it was a Springfield gun yeah. and the factory for those is in Massachusetts. Sure. There you go. There you go. So that guy's always up there. Mm-hmm. And the cross-examination of him always goes like this, no questions. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, yeah. Nothing else to yeah. talk about, yeah. yeah. But that guy was uh, the guy that did it in Waco. I mean, he appeared in a number of trials that I either observed or, you know, was in on somewhere. So I knew his face and I knew his name. We did not hang out or anything, and I wasn't friends with him, but I knew him. And so when the Branch Davidian thing happened here, and they had all the ATF people and the FBI, and you know, the whole of the government's law enforcement abilities were focused on Mm -hmm. a compound up there. One of the things that was being done was they were making sure they didn't escape, you know, under cover of yeah. night. Mm. And so one night um, they came on and said, there's been a shooting outside. You know, somebody tried to escape 
and then shots were fired and a federal officer was injured um, and but nobody escaped and you know it died down and they named the guy and put his picture up there. I go, that's the guy. He's the one that shows up at trial and says, <laughs> oh, no. firearm. Oh, what great. is he doing out there with a gun trying to take care of people? That's not his job. He knows, wow. he knows the way around a firearm. You think? But, but still, <laughs> apparently, apparently. he's not the guy that wears the vest and, you know, yeah. like is, you know, banging like, down doors. Expert, yeah. Oh, funny. Oh, no, to I think it might have been man. something like that that he <laughs> yeah. was like, Wait, it's my turn. What do you mean it's my turn? It's like, bro, you're in the ATF. Yeah, what do you think on, this means? <laughs> That's so funny. But he wasn't Called hurt badly. Duty. I mean, it, okay. was, it was like he didn't... I mean, he got shot, and that can't be good, but yeah. um, it was never kind of, he's in serious, <laughs> stable condition. It was like, no, he got shot. He's treated yeah. and released or something. Like, yeah. I know that guy. That's so funny. <laughs> he had some fun stories yeah. on the criminal side. Rest yeah. right. They just... Uh, I think it was the Court of Criminal Appeals just yesterday or, or just very recently came out with um, a clarification that the felony possession of a firearm in Texas is you've got a firearm or not. It doesn't stack up if you've mm-hmm. got three or four different yeah. guns, which, uh-huh. which was kind of interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, there's another interesting question that came up with that, and that is that if you have been charged with a felony, but as you can in Texas, you can discharge the felony by... Um, one of those diversionary things right. where you get um, deferred adjudication. Deferred That's the word. Deferred adjudication. I got one right. of those on a speeding ticket once. Yeah. I should oh, know good. That. Yeah. Deferred good. adjudication. You are yeah. guilty, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> no, don't say anything. Uh, don't. Yeah. Fifth Amendment. Fifth. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, if you did deferred adjudication, then there was no actual finding of guilt. Right. Yeah. So without that finding of guilt, are you a felon in possession? You've been charged, mm. but do you have possession of that? And I just had a guy come mm. to me and ask me. Um, he said, I got into a bar fight, and that's the way he described it, you know, and they pulled everybody up from the floor in the bar, and everybody went to jail, and everybody got charged with a felony, and everybody pled guilty, and almost everybody got deferred adjudication, mm-hmm. which all seems very sensible. Right. Sure. But he yeah. said, you know, like my family owns a ranch in South Texas and every hunting season I have to be down there to help my family with the hunters and everything that's down there. So I'm not only going to be staying in a house where there's tons of guns mm-hmm. where I might be charged with being in possession, but I actually want to go hunting again. Yeah. And so we tried to call anybody we could to say what's the government's position on whether he's a felon in possession with the Texas Deferred Adjudication Law. Wow. And no one would answer the question, so we filed a case in federal court for a declaration that he was not a felon. Oh my gosh. And sure enough, when they answered the case, I got a call from Washington, not from the local people, Washington, D.C., and they said, it's our position that he is not a felon. Wow. And I said, well, that's great. Do you want to agree to a judgment? He said, we do not want this case to go one moment further. Oh my gosh. And he said, I can give you this a letter signed by the Attorney General of the United States Beautiful. of America that says you Hello. are not a possession, you are not a fellow. And I said, I'll take it. That sounds yeah. good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we will frame that down there at the family That's right. house. Say, yeah, that's going to become the centerpiece of that, uh, right. of that hunting one. Yeah, so of wow. course I scanned that because that's the only letter that I had that I've ever seen uh, directed to anyone I knew that was yeah. signed by the Attorney General of the United States. So. That How incredible. Is, that is really cool. Amazing. I mean, you've you've done a lot, um, obviously on both sides, criminal, yeah. civil, appeals on both sides. I mean, you know, for our listeners who aren't sure if they want to just focus on criminal or if they think, 
you know, they want to be a defense attorney who does other things as well. I mean, what is it like juggling those different sets of rules, sets of parameters? You were talking earlier about yeah. how the skill set in trial is pretty much the same, but what's it like to juggle, you know, civil and criminal at the same time? Um, I think you'd have a little bit harder time adjusting from the detail of the Texas civil system mm-hmm. with the discovery that takes place and with the answers and written documents that are exchanged and the obligation to answer a question that's asked, mm-hmm. not to provide information not requested. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the length of deposition, the amount of time that preparation um, that goes to shifting through stuff that's meaningless and stuff that is critical. Mm-hmm. That process is detailed and not easy. And the Texas criminal system, like the steps of procedure in those, are not for the faint of heart. It's very easy to mess that up to great detriment. Yeah. Um, and of course, the penal code is very detailed. Um, and you know, knowing where to look for defenses or justifications or anything else um, is an art in and of itself. Knowing what those things mean. Um, so no, it's not very easy to just say. My doors are open for anybody that wants a trial lawyer. Yeah. But um, when you get a case and you know here is the substantive issue and here is where we are on procedure and you have time with one case to walk through it, not very hard. Okay. It would be hard to hold a substantial criminal docket, do the intake for that, know what, exactly what was going on in every case and what was happening and how many files need to be looked at and to handle a complicated civil docket would be um, not smart. Okay. But I think that if you were wanting to be a civil lawyer and you said, well, I want to get my exposure to criminal cases, um, you could get appointed, either at state courts or criminal courts, and handle one at a time, um, and get the feel for what it's like to like, have to cross-examine witnesses who you've never seen or spoken to. Right. which is a real skill in and of itself. Yeah. Um, to be able to look at documents and build a case together without having a chance to ask the other side anything. Um, that's a cool skill to have. Now, does that mature into something even better? Well, white-collar crime, white-collar, white-collar <laughs> criminal lawyers get paid a fortune. Okay. Yeah. And sure. so if you get to do, you know, you get to like tag on with um, some white-collar criminal defense stuff and, you know, learn what accounting and securities violations and, you know, kind of fraud cases and things like that are, um, boy, those would be fascinating to try because it has all the flavor of civil cases on the substantive end of it, yeah. but all of the gunslinger part of being a criminal lawyer. The gunslinger part, how yeah. true, huh? Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, and we talk a lot of, on this podcast about trial work because I think one of the things that draws so, so many of us, myself certainly included, to want to be a prosecutor right out the gate is trying a bunch of cases, mm-hmm. being in the courtroom all the time. Um, can you talk with us a little bit about what it's like being an appellate attorney, particularly a criminal law attorney, what particular set of skills that might <laughs> take, yeah, now, what it's like to argue in front the, of The big judges. metropolitan areas like Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Houston, Austin those district attorney's office will have a separate post-conviction section. Mm -hmm. And so they need appellate lawyers. Yeah, yeah. And they don't care whether you came from a civil background or anything else. They need people who can write and people who can argue. And just by way of experience, my youngest daughter, Baylor Lawyer, Mm -hmm. um, takes her first job in Fort Worth with a civil firm. Um, 
hoping to kind of concentrate on appellate stuff, but knowing that as a young lawyer, she's going to do what she's told. Yeah. Right? Because right? that's what young lawyers yeah. do. Right. Um, yeah. And after a couple of years of kind of, well, I'm here in the shadows, not unusual, you know, and treated like everybody else, but she, that's what she felt like. She said, I'm going to go work at the Fort DA's office. And, you know, she starts writing appellate briefs all the time. She's the lead counsel on them. She argues them at the Fort Worth Court of Appeals. She argued two cases at the Court of Criminal Appeals. Wow. All within, like, her first five years. Incredible. And so, so cool. appellate so. lawyers get the same opportunity that the trial lawyers do, and that is responsibility and opportunity to be in court much more quickly. She eventually left the Fort Worth DA's office and went to work back doing appellate work, but this time for a firm that does almost all appellate work. Okay. So she's argued cases since then all over the place. I'm going next week with her to go watch her argue at the Fifth Circuit. Oh my gosh, wow. So that track is like just what it sounds like. I yeah. get the experience and then I become more valuable to a civil firm because I've actually argued cases. I've actually been responsible for briefs. I've actually signed off on them. That's uh, really you know, cool. I've always actually had them cleared by somebody with a lot more um, experience. You know, so yeah, yeah. Well, that's really great to hear because again, you know, we we want to give our listeners a, a the wide array of possibilities for their careers. And I know there's some folks who would rather do the writing and arguing mm-hmm. than you know, like you said, the gunslinging and trial. But that's, well, that's and she cool. did on the prosecutor's side. But my other daughter in Atlanta did it on the defense side. Yeah, she went to work for the public defender's office, and she asked to be put in the appellate division after she tried cases for two years. And they sent her to the main one in Atlanta, Georgia, where they handled the whole case, the whole state. Wow. And so she argued wow. cases all over the state and before the Georgia Supreme Court. Which I went out there to go watch that. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I mean, that kind of experience. Phone finger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dang right. That's what she said. So I mean, that path is just as good on the defense side as it is on the prosecutor side. Um, when you find public defender um, offices. They don't just need somebody that is only doing trial work. They very often have a post-conviction or appellate division uh, that does that. That's really cool. If you were a civil trial lawyer and you're also looking to kind of wet your feet in criminal stuff, I would contact the federal public defender or the state public defender's office because they also have usually contracts for conflict counsel. Okay. So the public defender's office will be assigned to a case and it has two defendants. They can't do both oh, of them. Right. And yeah. so they have to have a deal made with private mm-hmm. lawyers to be conflict counsel so that when they have that kind of case, they can call them and say, you've agreed to do these kind of these conflict cases for us. And, you know, whatever the contract rate is, I, sure. don't, I don't know what they pay, but, you know, so there's, there's that opportunity to get your feet wet in criminal stuff, get into court, actually try cases yeah, um, without having to be, you know, full-time in it and still, you know, progress yourself in civil matters. Yeah. Well, it seems like if you if you signed on with one of those conflict contracts, you would kind of know when a case is coming up better than if you just get tossed one as an appointment, right? Like you... It's, Probably so. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think that if you kind of put a stamp of real life on it, yeah. you got that deal because you met the people that were in charge of hiring conflict counsel, you interviewed with them, 
um, you applied for that job and they chose you. Yeah. And so it's yeah. not like you can't pick up the phone and say, you know, hey, you know, what's going on with conflict cases? Do you have any coming up? And, you know, find, kind of learn something about it. There you go. Yeah. So what you're saying is if you can get one of those contracts, it's not only just another revenue stream, but it's a way to supplement your civil work with some criminal cases as well. Yeah, and I think that's pretty easy for a lawyer working for in the civil area to sell to the partners because not only am you, I'm going to be in the courtroom, I'm going to be writing a brief, I'm going to be you know, actually doing a trial in front of a real judge, I'm going to do all that stuff, and not only do you not have to pay for it, but you get paid for me doing that. Yeah. yeah. So that sounds big great. Benefit. Yeah, good all around. Man. Well, we've been richly fed today. <laughs> <laughs> Stories yes. and good advice and talking about Vordire and everything. Yes. Sarah, is there anything that we didn't ask Professor White that we should have? Um, I, you know, I don't think so. I think we've gotten um, some great advice. Like you said, stories, yeah. um, sage, you know, sage <laughs> advice and information from Professor White that's, you know, rare to get, but we're lucky to have a professor like him on the Baylor faculty. So I yeah. think we've covered about all grounds today. Yeah. I would appear on any podcast where people <laughs> continue to inflate my that's ego. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll keep doing it. I mean, don't it's, worry uh, about it. You know, we, we don't offer much it's on the Criminal Law Society podcast, but... Ego inflation is one of the things. There you that go. We it, it's well a done. Perk. It, it is a perk. <laughs> um, I know it's not a deposition, but is there anything I didn't ask you that I should? Oh, oh God, PTSD. So here. much, Man. so I much. Know, I'm sure we can fill up another whole episode <laughs> yeah. of stories. Uh, any nuggets of wisdom or last sound bites you want to leave with the the listeners? No, not particularly. Just enjoyed doing this. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for having me. No problem. I think Eddie. we'll have to do another one with him soon. We might have to. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Because it seems like there are a lot of Professor White Part 2. Yeah. You it's might have good. to do it on the for the PG-13 group. <laughs> Some of the stories that I left out. If we ever yeah, get approval for the After Hours podcast. The yeah, Greg White After Hours, yes. That's right. That would, That's right. That'd be great. All right. Well, thanks again. Seriously. All right. Thank you, Professor and thanks, White. thanks, Sarah, for, for being my Aww. spectacular guest. It's my pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure. Love you guys. You guys are great. All right. All right, listeners, well, we will leave it there for this week. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Until next time, y'all take care. <laughs>